0: In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Jason and musicians, singers. Beautiful today. And choir. Wow, wasn't that choir special? Beautiful? Uh, Thank you, choir. Beautiful. Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And as you can see on the screen, we're still in that series. But this is the close. Uh, of the series on authentic love for Jesus. I had intended to close this series before Christmas, uh, but of course when I put this together, I didn't realize that um, Pastor Matt would be leaving us and I wanted him to take that last Sunday morning to be able to preach again here. so he took that Sunday morning that pushed this close uh, a little further ahead. So we're closing today in this uh, series on uh, authentic love. For Jesus. We're in a great passage. Jesus is speaking here. And uh, let's pick it up. We're going to read just about four or five verses. And then keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to this text. But let's start reading in verse 36. And uh, uh, one of the Pharisees says to him, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together now. Make it profitable for each of us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There was a common practice in biblical days in the New Testament where merchants who made and sold pottery would... Um, if the pottery had, had uh, breaks or flaws, they would cover it with wax. Now, an honest merchant, the ones that had the breaks and the uh, uh, so forth... Uh, Uh, flaws would put them over here and sell them cheaper and he would sell the ones without any flaw over here but the ones that were willing to be deceptive they would take colored uh, uh, wax and put it in that uh, in those uh, crevices and so forth and smooth it over so that you couldn't tell it so a smart shopper would would pick up the vase or or pick up the pottery and would hold it up towards the sun to put light on it so that he could try to see if it had flaws before he took it home and put some heat to it. Because if you take it home and put some heat to it, you know what happens to the wax. The wax all disappears and all the flaws become obvious. And so uh, uh, this term, without wax, became synonymous with the word in our text, it, not this text, but in the text, our theme text for the whole series, of sincerity. It became synonymous with the word sincerity. Uh, it meant that they, uh, this was a genuine, authentic, without wax piece of pottery. They even put, uh, it even become common, they would put a sign outside their store saying without wax, meaning this is an honest store and this store doesn't have any wax in it so you can come in here and buy what you want. Now look at the theme verse again with that in mind. And uh, in Ephesians 6:24, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Remember we've talked about that Greek word sincerity several times. And here's kind of the definition written in. It means love him in purity, in completeness, in genuineness, in authenticity. And now I'm adding this phrase, without wax. Now, uh, you, uh, you have a handout in your bulletin, but you don't need that for the sermon today. That's just kind of a summary uh, of a few thoughts over the uh, eight-week uh, series. But I added in yours too, this little phrase, without wax is there. Now, something else Uh, about the second sermon in this series, I was talking to Pastor Don Wagner out in the hallway, and uh, he said that one of his professors gave the illustration that, uh, that sometimes not only with pottery, but with sculptures, people would use wax. Now, you can imagine if someone was sculpting something out of stone uh, and how long that takes and how tedious that work would be. And uh, if, you, if you got a crack in the, your sculpture, you sure would hate to have to start all over again. So what some of them would do, they would cover those cracks again in wax, colored wax to blend in. And even, uh, even the fingers. Now think about, you're working on the fingers and the fingers are a little delicate, you know, and you're chiseling away at the fingers and all of a sudden you chop off and a, and a finger falls off. Well, you hate to start all over again, so what they would do, they would get some wax and and put that finger back on there. But then, you know, you buy the sculpture, you take it home, set it out in your front yard, and you're so proud of it, and the sun comes out, and the fingers fall off. Well, that's kind of the way, you see, it is when the heat comes, when the heat of affliction comes, and we're put together with wax, we fall apart. So it's important that we understand this concept of without wax, sincerity, genuineness. Now, it's true that I'm not talking about perfection, and I don't want you to think that way. I'm not talking about perfect. It's better to love the Lord just some than not to love Him at all, isn't it? And it's better to love the Lord uh, more than it is just to love Him a little, And it's better to love the Lord a lot than it is to love Him just more. But what He calls us to and what we're growing towards and striving towards is to love Him supremely, to love Him without wax, without mixture, without hypocrisy, to love Him, as our text says, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. That word all there has the idea of Without wax. Love him without wax. With your heart, soul, and strength. Mine. Now with that said, let's look back at our text. Uh, go back a little further now and pick it up in verse 15. And uh, it says, And when the Pharisees took counsel, how they might entangle him in his talk. And, uh, and they sent out unto him their disciples, with the Herodians, saying, then, Master, and they begin to try to trick him. There's really, in this passage, there's three groups of people that are trying to trick Jesus, entangle him in his words. Now, they had already decided they were going to kill him. In our text today, this text takes place on Tuesday, just before the cross on Friday. And uh, before that Holy Week, that Passion Week, uh, John chapter 11 reveals to us they've already decided in their hearts and minds they're going to kill him. It's just a matter of when and how. How can they do it? So why would they try to trick him here? They've already made up their minds. Well, they want to belittle him in front of the people. They want to make him look bad in front of the people because uh, they're going to put him to death and they're afraid of an uprising of the people who are his followers. So they're trying to make him look bad and stumble over his words so that uh, they won't, uh, the uprising won't be as intense. So these three groups, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, we'll see those in a minute, three groups. Let me define those just quickly. The Pharisees believed the Old Testament. They believed the Bible was inspired and they believed the stories in the Bible were true. But their problem was uh, they were legalists. They took not only what the Bible said, but they took their own traditions and their own um, uh, preferences and their own interpretation of Scripture. They took all those things and put them up here level with the written Word of God. And so they became legalists. You know, it's very important that we are careful today not to become legalists. We can p- take our traditions and our understandings and we can put them up level with God's Word too and judge people if their traditions not exactly like ours or they don't do things exactly the way we do. They're sub-Christian or something. We have to be careful about that. So they were, uh, uh, were legalists. Now the Herodians that's mentioned here, uh, they believed... Uh, Their name came after Herod the Great. They believed Rome was good for Israel. Rome was, of course, uh, over Israel in this period of time. And they thought the best thing to do was cooperate completely with Rome and just blend in and be a Roman and let your Jewish character come second and so forth. And so they believed in, uh, in the good of the Roman Empire. Now, the Pharisees that I just mentioned, they're the group that the zealots come from, the zealots that were always fighting against uh, Rome and trying to push Rome back. Now, the third group is the Sadducees. <clears throat> we used to... I don't, I don't know why I'm going to say this, but we used to tell the kids the Sadducees, you can remember them because they were always sad, you see. They were always sad because of what they believed. Uh, The Sadducees were, uh, they were liberals. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe that everything the Bible said was exactly what it said. They symbolized things and so forth. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural and so forth. So they were the liberals. So these three groups couldn't agree on anything. I mean, they were at odds with each other all the time, except the one thing they could agree on was getting rid of Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? That's the unregenerated heart. And so the three groups now come to Jesus. They pose questions. We don't have time to look at the other questions, though they're very interesting. And by the way, uh, uh, Ray Perdue is preaching through The Gospel of Mark on Wednesday nights. And he's doing a tremendous job. And you will love that study. And it's just getting started. Uh, So we don't have time to look at those two, but we're going to come back to our text now and pick up the question in verse 34. Look at verse 34 now. And when the Pharisees saw that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. They're getting their heads together. The big shots are all getting together, you know. And uh, they're going to make Jesus look bad. Jesus was uneducated. That is, he was not educated in the formal ways of the scribes and Pharisees and the high priest and so forth. And they wanted to make him look bad in front of everyone. So they're gathered to get their game plan together, you know. And verse 35 says, And one of them which was a lawyer. Now that doesn't mean he was an attorney. That means he was an expert on the law of Moses the old testament so he's an expert he's got the highest education and and uh so there was a lawyer asked him a question tempting him or testing him now see they didn't they didn't really want help from jesus again this is all trying to tangle him up in his words so he says they to test him and this is what he says master which is the great commandment in the law now this brings us back to our text Now, this was not an unusual question at all. Matter of fact, the the scholars of that day, the Jewish scholars debated on which laws were most important. What were the the most important three laws? What were the most important law? And they debated that all the time. Uh, The fact is that they they could find in the Old Testament uh, 613 laws in the Old Testament. And they divided those laws... In many ways, but one of the ways they divided them was uh, positive laws. Uh, there was uh, 248 of those that says for you should do something, do this. Positive laws, and then there were uh, 365 negative laws, don't do this. So they divided them like that, and then there was always this debate on which was the greatest or the most important. So they're asking Jesus this question, that's a rather common question, but here's the catch. Everybody out there listening to Jesus has their opinion on, on uh, what's the most important law. And so whatever Jesus says in their mind, they're thinking he's going to make enemies. He's, he chooses this one law and uh, most of the people out there have chosen another law and so they're trying to tangle him in his words. And Jesus responds by saying... Verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is the first time these two laws have been coupled together. They were coupled together by the Lord Jesus himself. In all the discussions over all the centuries, the scholars had not coupled these two. This comes from Jesus himself. The, the first part of that, loving the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind, comes from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Jewish people, the devout Jewish people, quoted that every morning. They prayed that every morning. And they were to teach it to their children, just like you and I are to teach our children to love the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind. So they were to do so. So that came from Deuteronomy 6. But love your neighbor as yourself came from Leviticus 19.18. These two laws had never been coupled together until now, and Jesus profoundly puts those two together, and then he says all the rest of the law uh, hangs on these two. That is, if you love God, you're not going to do anything to offend God or hurt him. If you love people, you're not going to do anything to hurt people. If you love you. And your neighbor doesn't mean... The person that lives next door to you, uh, where you live in your neighborhood, though they would be included. That means all of mankind is our, Jesus defined that as anybody that comes into our path is our neighbor. So if we love our neighbor as ourself, that means we'll, we won't mistreat anyone. So everything hangs on these two, Jesus said. Now, let's think about a little more of the details here again. Up in verse 37, love him with all thine heart. All is the idea of without wax. No mixture, no hypocrisy. Love him supremely and love him with all. Love him sincerely with all your heart. And then we've got three words here, heart, soul, and mind. We're to love him with all of our heart. The word heart refers to the seat of our emotions uh the uh affection and so forth uh, a, a love that we can feel for our uh, for our wife and husband and for our children and for our parents it's a, a, a affectionate love i heard one time a pastor who was trying to distinguish between agape and filio love in the new testament you know the two words for love that's used in the new testament And phileo, of course, is that human affection. And agape is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts so that we can love people and uh, treat them as they should be treated. And in doing so, he, he tried to divide them and say that we shouldn't love Jesus with an emotional kind of love. We shouldn't love him in a sentimental way. We shouldn't love Him in a, in a you know, a gushy way that, uh, it's, that loving Him is just being obedient to Him. Well, He was entirely wrong. We are to love Him with our heart, with all of our emotion, with all of our affection, without wax in it. Love him sincerely with that, if you want to use a word that that he tried to make sound negative, a mushy kind of love. Love him in a mushy kind of way. Praise him and adore him and cry and weep and love him and express that love to him. Love him with all your heart, all of your emotion. And then love him with all of your soul. What does soul mean here? Soul is who you are. It's your being, Love him with, with all your being. I've, I have found myself recently at funerals saying something like this, saying that even in the church, among God's people, our terminology is a little off on this soul and body. We say something like this. Everybody has a soul. That's not exactly right. Everybody doesn't have a soul. Everybody is a soul. We have a body. We're not the body. See, in our thinking, we have a soul. We are the soul. What we have is a body. When we die physically, the the, the, the body is the house we live in. We move out of that house and go somewhere else. If we're lost, we go to hell. If we're saved, we go to heaven. But the real you, that's your soul. That's who you are. You have a body. I have a body. But I am the soul. It's our being. It's who we are. We're to love him in the depths of our being. Obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he said it the other way around. He said, the ones who keep my commandments, they're the ones who love me. I said, I think... At the beginning of this series, John McCormick, I heard him say one time when I was in Bible college that uh, people don't do what they know, they do what they love. And I found that to be true over these 40 some odd years. People do what they love. So love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and then all of your mind, all of your intellect. Put your mind into it. Study the word. Find out about him and uh, love him with your mind. And then notice he says everything hangs on this. Now, verse 41, he says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. By the way, I don't think I mentioned this I mentioned the 613 laws, but the Jews also had what they called the oral law or the oral, oral Torah. Torah means law uh, in Hebrew. Uh, and though they had 613 in the Scripture, Old Testament, they had thousands upon thousands of laws that were what they called the oral law. And, uh, and those, the Pharisees are the ones who elevated those. And, and these laws were made, for instance, they were made from maybe an interpretation. We believe uh, when the Bible says this, it implies this, this, and this. Well, the implication then was elevated to the same place as the Scripture itself. Their traditions, their preferences were put into that and elevated to the level of God's Word. Thousands of laws. Now... With all of that thinking about it and everything, now Jesus is going to pose a question to them. Yeah. Bear with me for a minute and see if we can see, think about the, the, uh, uh, the reality of what's taking place here. This is the wisdom of the ages debating with the great ego of mankind. I mean, they thought they had all the answers. They thought they had it all together. So much so that they were going to kill the Lord Jesus, and now they were trying to make him look bad. And I love that phrase, while the Pharisees were gathered together. (laughs) They were gathered together to make him look bad. Jesus didn't call them together, but while they were together, he thought he would pose a question to them. Look at the next verse. Saying, Jesus asked them, saying, What think you of Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, and they say unto him, the son of David. And that was a correct answer. That was a term used in the Old Testament to describe the coming Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah. He would be the son of David. Son means descendant. He would be a descendant of David. So they answered correctly. But at the very beginning of this question, it must have have got really intense because just a few days before, remember this is on Tuesday, on Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people shouted in the streets, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Praise to the Son of David. They called him the Son of David. And there was a great uproar in Jerusalem. and Everybody knew about it. They were calling him the Messiah, the Son of David. And Jesus did not rebuke them. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 don't call me that. He accepted their worship. He accepted that title. So they knew that he claimed to be the Son of David. So when he said, whose son is the Christ, the Messiah, they said, son of David. It must have got tense, don't you think? And then notice he says, verse 43, He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? That is, Messiah. Call him Lord, saying, And now he quotes From Psalm 110, verse 1. And I thought about pulling it on the screen, but it's not necessary. It's really exactly what Jesus quotes here. Verse 44. And Now he's quoting the Old Testament scripture written by David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? Now here's the reasoning. Before I point that out, little nugget in here on inspiration of Scripture. David said it, but it was in the Spirit. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That is the Psalms. Psalm 10101. A Psalm of David. And David spoke it, but it was the Spirit that moved him. So Jesus here, using that terminology that we use with inspiration of Scripture. So he says, if... if... David's son is the Messiah, his descendant, how can the Messiah at the same time be his Lord? And how can he at the same time, a thousand years before this, be seated at the right hand of God if he hadn't been born yet? Now the Jewish people had the idea that the Messiah would only be human, that he would be a great leader. That he would be a great king and that he would deliver uh, the people of Israel from political um, bondage, in this case, to Rome. Uh, They did not see nor understand that Jesus would be God who came in the flesh. Now, Jesus here is making it very clear his deity. Again, think with me now. Look at verse 44. He's quoting the Psalm, the Lord. See, all capital, all capitals on the word Lord. That means in the King James, that means it is Jehovah. And so the, the Lord Jehovah said unto my Lord, David speaking, my Lord. This time Lord is capital L, small uh, O R D. That means it's the word Adonai. Again, in the King James, it's the word Adonai, which means master. Now, it is true that sometimes in the Old Testament, this word was used of a human master. But but much of the time, it was used for God himself. But now, when you evaluate it in David's setting, David didn't have a master. He was the king. He He was the top of the food chain. David did not have a human master. So David was referring to a master that he had right then a thousand years ago, and that master was seated at the right hand of Jehovah. Well, of course, you and I, understanding the New Testament, know that God the Father and God the Son, God the Son is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But here's now something new to the Jews. All the Jews of that day, the Orthodox Jews, would have believed that that psalm was referring to the Messiah. So he already had that in his favor. He's saying to them... If you think the, the Messiah is just coming of human and be a human, then how did David call him Lord and Master a thousand years ago and he was his master right then? The only way is that as the descendant of David, it speaks of his, huma- his humanity. And as the Lord of David, it speaks of his deity. He is God. He was God a thousand years ago. He was God ten million years ago. And now he's the Messiah right in front of them. Now here's here's the thought. They're saying, yes, we love God with all of our heart. But God himself was standing in front of them. And all they could think about was how can we put him to death? Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you knew the Father, you would love me. (laughs) None of these groups, and I don't mean individuals now, but none of these groups as a whole knew the Father. That's the reason they wanted to kill the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is saying, "You, you say that... Uh, this is about the Messiah and the Messiah was in the future when this was written and yet he was David's Lord right at that moment and he was seated at the right hand of Jehovah. How can that be? That's what Jesus is saying to them. Notice now their response. And no man was able to answer him a word. (laughs) All of their education all of their planning, all of their deceptive action to try to trip him up, he asked them a simple question. They can't, cannot answer one word. And notice the rest. Neither dared they any man from that day to ask him any more questions. God, who came in the flesh. When you and I think about loving God, with all of our heart and soul and strength, we think about loving the Lord Jesus because He is God the Son. And He is our Lord and our Redeemer and our Master. Now we're going to close with a five-minute clip from the movie. And this will close out the series. You know, we've been showing clips from the uh, movie, Uh, it's a documentary by uh, a missionary and his wife Nick Ripkin and his wife Ruth. And they're in the dark because it could be dangerous for them or the people they're talking about if they were not in the dark telling these stories. Now, some of you haven't been here all along, so I'm just going to kind of give you a quick update bringing you up to this video. This video is kind of a summary. And uh, here's some of the things that we've talked about, seen in the video. Uh, one was a father who was tortured in prison because he would not deny the Lord. And his son, when he got to visit him and he was at the point of death, his son said to him, Father, I'm so proud of you. Now, you remember uh, Nick Ripkin is considered by most to be the foremost authority on the persecuted church in the world today. He's traveled to 72 countries over a period of 30 years and interviewed hundreds and hundreds, over 600 uh, people and groups that were in severe persecution. So one story is about this man in prison. You'll see just a little glimpse of that. And then he will mention the believers in Somalia. Believers in Somalia were massacred simply because they were believers in the Lord Jesus. And some of those believers, missionary Nick Ripkin, had celebrated communion with them just a week before they were murdered. And then there's a man in prison that's there for 17 years for teaching God's Word in his home. And he's with 1,500 criminals. And every morning he stands and lifts his hands towards heaven and sings praises to the Lord Jesus. And the Other prisoners hate him so bad, they throw everything. Anything they can get their hands on, they throw at him. They throw human waste at him and so forth. But every morning, he gets up and stands and praises God, sings his song. As the tape ends today, you'll hear that song again. Then when they are taking him out to execute him spontaneously, all 1,500 of those prisoners raise their hands towards heaven and begin to praise the Lord Jesus after listening to him do that for 17 years. In some way, God intervenes, and he's not executed. He gets to go home, and you'll see just a little quick picture. That's the reason I'm saying some of this, because this goes quickly. You'll see a little quick picture of him hugging his two boys that are now grown and his wife embracing together. You'll also make, they'll also make mention of the loss of their son. You may remember this, that Tim, their son, the missionary's son, died in Africa asthma attack and they were in such a place where they couldn't get him to a a suitable medical clinic so he died on the mission fields buried there in the mission field and then he told about a man that he called the toughest man he'd ever met he was a muslim grew up a muslim and he had killed at least hundred and fifty people with his bare hands or with a knife he quit counting after 150. Most of them killed with, his, with a knife or his bare hands. And he was proud of it. But then he came to Christ, found forgiveness of sin, and his life was changed. And now he risks his life every day carrying Bibles into countries that will not allow Bibles in, and he smuggles them in. And he does this every day. And this is who Nick is referring to when he calls him the toughest man he's ever met. And uh, so we have this kind of a summary coming up. And the question, is Jesus worth it all? You know, I've used, and it's only five minutes, like I said. Let me say this before I we show. I've used these examples because, as I said, we, we've kind of been holding. What I wanted us to do was hold our, uh, our pottery up towards the light of God's word and see where our own flaws and where our wax is not you judging me not me judging you but us we ourselves we we want to hold it up and judge ourselves and see where the wax is and seeing these people who live out a sincere love authentic love for Jesus helps us see that even more with that said let's Watch this last five-minute video.
1: The toughest man I ever met gave me the question maybe the only question that matters for believers and sadly when we ask most in the Western Church is Jesus worth my life and the life of my wife and and is it appropriate to take risk with your children for the sake of the kingdom of God and the answer has been overwhelming silence or it's been no you don't do that with your wife and kids I remember going to Ruth after Tim died and, and you know all this stuff is in pieces around us And I said, uh, we've given one son for this stuff. Do we risk uh, our other two boys? And you know, in that time of brokenness, we we said to each other, uh, to say that Jesus is not worth it is to waste Tim's sacrifice. And so we, we don't know where we're going to find the health, and we don't know where we're going to find the courage, and we don't know where all the pieces are coming back together. But we will hold on to Jesus until Jesus proves otherwise, that He's not worth it.
0: God showed us that He wasn't going to waste Tim's life. And He reminded us over and over
1: that He would direct us, and He had a purpose for our lives. You see, coming out of all of that Somali stuff, and the really hard question that we were asking believers in persecution all over the world, is, was Jesus worth it? And the toughest man I ever met answered that question for us. Standing among 1,500 hardened criminals with his hands raised facing the east singing his heart song to Jesus, uh, he proved to us Jesus is worth it. That emaciated uh, skeleton of a pastor tortured by the KGB, his eight-year-old son taking his hand saying, Dad, I'm so proud of you, that family is saying. Jesus is worth it.
0: We knew the risk and we knew the cost. But Tim's life and death was worth it. Because Christ's life and love was worth it.
1: I want to ask my church in America and my family in the West and the churches that love Ruth and I, uh, is Jesus worth it? What risk are we willing to take for the kingdom of God? And do we know that to get to resurrection, it's almost always preceded by crucifixion. But if the resurrection is true, it changes everything, and the gospel continues to be authenticated because of what people are willing to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. сердце вечно да могилы врагам все
0: Regardless of the language or the culture or the country in which we live, we all have to answer that question. Is Jesus worth it? Is He worth us loving Him with all of our heart and soul and with all of our mind without any wax? Serving Him with all of our strength, giving out out of all that He's blessed us with to His cause. Is He worth it? I think the answer is yes, don't you? He's worth it. Bow with me, please. With our heads bowed, maybe you'd say, this preacher, I know I'm saved. There's no doubt about that. But I want you to pray for me today because I want to love the Lord with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind. I want to love Him without wax. And when He reveals to me areas where there's wax, I want to get rid of that and love Him sincerely and authentically. That's my prayer today If that's your prayer Would you slip your hands up all over the building Would you? Yes, hands are up everywhere Mine is too, you may put them down Maybe you'd say this, preacher I'm not saved, I've never had my sins Washed away in the blood of Christ Pray for me No one will come to you No one will embarrass you Let us pray for you, would you slip your hand up right now Preacher, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior And had my sins washed away Pray for me, anyone like that Anyone? All right. Father, thank you for our time together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love so many things in this world and we throw that word love around so easily, flippantly. May we love you supremely, authentically, genuinely, without wax. And may we love you with all of our heart and soul and mind. And may we love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, please. We're going to sing together. The words are on the screen. And as we sing, if you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come. You might want to just slip out of your seat and come and kneel and talk to the Lord and slip back to your seat. If that's the